Good morning. <laughs> well, I, uh, I wish I could do a slideshow of my last couple of weeks. I've been away up at a Christian monastery up in the Hudson Valley up in New York. And uh, I learned so much. Uh, most of it would probably bore you to tears, but uh, really had a wonderful time. But, but most of all, I walked away just feeling like the size of our order had increased, that we have a, a, a very large number of brothers up there that are sincerely and earnestly uh, trying to find that divinity within that we're all hungering for, to find and touch that, that, that purest love. And uh, it was nice being in a different flavor for a while, you know, nice, nice seeing God from a different angle and through a different set of facts and events and uh, to to worship with some brothers who for for whom bhakti has been been their only path their only idea and it was very sweet and um, they had lots of questions about you and I got to boast so much about this center and uh, uh, because although I just I just saw <laughs> How naturally delightful the devotees here are. You know, I, I got to talk about how everything here is taken care of by you. How you keep the place clean and you keep the flowers decorated and you bring the food and yeah, the, the gardens and, and uh, just the natural love that seems to, to fill this center and the hearts of the devotees here. I was delighted to share that with them and to encourage them uh, with that. And... Uh, uh, anyway, just overall, it was a delightful time. Now, I was, I was accused the last time I spoke of being a romantic, and uh, I desperately wanted to set that record straight, but alas, I have to admit, I think I probably am. Uh, that and a terrible pun artist. So today's lecture is on uh, solar, <laughs> solar energy. <laughs> I apologize up front for that. Uh, I, I actually told them up there every morning in there in the monastery there they have what they call a chapter. I have to make sure I get all my terms right. They've got a they've got a name for everything, but they sit in a circle as a group and they just they go around and first they confess anything that they might have done that they thought brought harm to the monastery or bothered other monks or anything like that, and. Uh, then they sing some nice songs and then read from their rules of the order, which are rather inspiring. And then, uh, then they go around one by one and list out any prayers that they would like people to pray for about them or their friends or someone in the congregation that they know of. Or even as it got as big as the news every day. You know, we did a lot of prayers for people in, in uh, God, it seems like everywhere. <laughs> the whole world is either on fire or blowing away or washed away or shaking down. But uh, we did a lot of prayer in that sense. And then you go around and everybody talks about what their plans are uh, for the day, what they're going to be doing. And I mentioned uh, that I was going to speaking, that I had to work on this lecture. And I, <laughs> my topic was solar energy. And I had to spell it for them. And all I got was just a real 17 guys looking at me and rolling their eyes at the same time. Like... <laughs> So I realized what I had done to all of you with the bulletin. We're going to talk about, though, that infinite source 
of energy, that, uh, that, inner, that, that inner light, that promise of an unquenchable well of divinity, of love that dwells within us. We all, I, I like to talk about it all the time, and I'm hoping to one day stumble into it. Uh, but I want to talk in a very practical way this morning about ways of tapping into it. Uh, in this day and age when we're running around with 19 different things going on simultaneously. Uh, and that's mostly just trying to keep up with the craziness of everything. And we have to know, we have to come to a place that we, we have to believe that that exists within us. That our practice in the morning has to, at least in part, be about establishing our mind for that, for the day, uh, our stability in that for the day, our peace in that for the day. And hopefully through a lot of that practice, it becomes strong enough to carry us through that day. Now, I just came from a Christian monastery, so I've kind of been bathed in Christian uh, sources for the last couple of weeks. And so I'm going to share a few of them because I had a, a delightful time sitting in the church. They have a very old church. It's over 100 years old, and it's done in that grand style, you know, of, of stonework from the surrounding area. There's tons of slate just laying all over the Hudson Valley up there. So it's a beautiful church. It's kind of worn, you know, in the sense of character, having lots of characters, chip, chips in the plaster and whatnot. And they light it very, very faintly, uh, there's the candles, the standard candles, you know, and the offering shrines around and whatnot. And one night, I'm going to share just a lovely experience that I, that I had there, uh, one of the gifts that I feel like I got from being there. To sit in that dimly lit church by myself, uh, there in silence from 6 p.m. until 8.30 the next morning every day. And so the place is extremely quiet. Nobody was around. And I went into this large auditorium, and I sang a few songs, which is so wonderful. They just echo through the vast, big size of the church. And I sat there at, a, at, a, at the foot of a cross with the candles lit and the flickering happening. And uh, one of the beautiful things that I like about their church is it's, it's a cross and Jesus is there like that, but it's, it's not a crucifixion. They've removed the nails from his hands and from his feet because they say they worship the, the risen you know, Christ, not the crucified Christ. And I found that much easier to sit in front of, you know, much easier to understand. But one of the things, I, I think maybe because of my background, it touched me, is I was thinking about the idea of forgiveness. Um, not so much from the, per, the traditional perspective of how badly I need it. You know, that's always how it's presented. But more from the idea of how free it makes us. I sat there and, to, and, and had an extended thought. Like, I've, I always under, not understood, but always intellectually grasped the idea of being forgiven, of how infinite God's grace is, and how, how much he's covered, or she has got everything covered for us. But I understood a further implication that I hadn't really thought of before, and if, tell me if you agree with it afterwards. For total forgiveness to happen, for infinite forgiveness to happen, for that level of cleansing to happen, 
God has to also accept the blame. He has to also accept the blame because we can't in any way be responsible for full forgiveness to happen. If there's any sense of owning any of that, the forgiveness is not complete. We haven't set it down. And I, it was a scary thought at first because I felt afraid to let go of my responsibility you know, for my, for my life, whether it's a wreck or not. I felt afraid to let go, feeling like, oh God, if I let go of that, I'm not going to be able to grow, I'm not going to be able to change, I'm not going to be... But I, I talked myself into it in the silence of the church there to believe it for a moment, that God was responsible for my faults, that he had accepted that responsibility, and that he had given me full forgiveness in that. And it, it was so beautiful because for just a few moments, religion again returned to a kind of a celebration, to kind of, <laughs> I don't know, just a deep enjoyment, no, a no-worry zone. For just a few moments, all of the effort that I've put in and am putting into this life and all of the failures of it weren't the point. For just a moment, that freedom was the point. For just a moment, I remembered the love of God in the way that it has to be, in the way that it must be. And I understood that religion can come from a very, very, very different place if we approach it from that place. And that tied into this idea of, of, of having an infinite well of energy within to where this life is not about accomplishing. This life is about enjoying the beloved, enjoying God and seeing God. In Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, one of the Jewish prophets, he says to you, he says, haven't you known, have you not heard this everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint, is never weary. There is no searching his understanding. Don't you know the nature of this divinity? Don't you know it never ends? There's no lack in it. There's no bottom to the cup. That this strength is infinite. There's no weariness there. There's no getting tired there. It's not necessary. And that faith that I got to enjoy for just a few minutes before the, the green scum of the water <laughs> closed over again really opened up this idea, wow, that's what faith means. That's what faith is when Takor says faith is fundamental to this quest. It's, it's a real, honest-to-goodness, fundamental conviction, an axiom, not a theorem, that that... Everything to be accomplished is accomplished. All the things that you're nervous about are already taken care of. All of your fears are already proved senseless, needless. Isaiah goes on and says, He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases their strength. So that means that it's available to you. That this isn't something that, uh, you know, you have to earn or <laughs> it's being withheld from you or tricked out from you. But it's available to you freely 
He says, even if the youth are fainting and being weary, and even if young men are utterly falling, he says, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and they will not faint. Those who wait on the Lord, you know, there's two meanings to wait. (laughs) And both of them are fully, fully true in this case. Waiting meaning waiting for that faith to dawn upon us, for that ability to set everything down and find that bliss to dawn upon us, waiting for, for that bondage to end, for our, for our wrong thinking to be clarified, for our ignorance to be uh, lit, <laughs> enlightened. So there's that sense that even that, just waiting on the Lord, that if you see your life as that. But then there's also the sense, which is probably the meaning of the real word here, is to serve God. Those For those who everything that they do is an offering to the beloved. To those who give everything the day, you know, my favorite is the, the because I can't think of a more mundane thing than sitting there filling out your form at the DMV. <laughs> if you can turn that experience into worship, you're getting there. You know, to sit there and fill out that form perfectly printing very cleanly so she's not going to have to squint at it when you're done filling out all the things not arguing when it asks you for your social security number you know even though it's illegal (laughs) going through it and just offering every step of it as your best for nothing you're not filling out a form you're worshiping and to have that approach to it and to give it if you can live your life like that even Isaiah in a completely different tradition in a completely other time in a completely other culture is telling you that you will not grow weary. You will not faint. As a matter of fact, you'll mount up and soar like like an eagle. There's a John Denver song immediately in my mind. Hafiz tells us very straightforwardly, I have to go there because I haven't read my Hafiz poem yet. So here it comes. Hafiz tells you, forgiveness is the cash you need. All other kinds of silver really buy just strange things. Everything has its music. Everything has genes of love inside. But learn from those courageous, addicted lovers of glands and opium and gold. Look, they cannot jump high. They cannot laugh long when they are whirling. And the moon and the stars become sad when their tender light is used for night wars. Forgiveness is part of the treasure you need to craft your falcon wings and return to your true realm of divine freedom. That is one of those public warning services. So somebody check it (laughs) and let us know what's on fire now. So he's talking here. Oh. oh, in Virginia. Bummer. Forgiveness is the cash you need. So oddly enough, here it is, you know, coming from the Sufi mystic. Everything else, every other kind of cash, every other kind of motive that you have in your life, aside from that absolute forgiveness and acceptance of the bliss of God, anything else that motives is just another strange kind of cash, strange kind of silver that's going to give you odd things. 
And he says, look and see. Look at those people who are addicted to their glands. What he means by there is your body, the pleasures that your body can give to you. Look at those who are addicted to those pleasures. Look at those who are addicted to their opium, to to the things that they put into their body for pleasure. He said, sure, they whirl, they dance, but they can't dance long. They can't whirl for long. That ends, and the need arises again even deeper. And he says, then God is sad because wars come from that, the need for more, the need for bigger, the need for better, the need for more security, the need for X, Y, and Z. So if your source isn't that divinity within you, that absolute grace of the divine within you, that beautiful union of of love that is within, then look carefully at the things that are happening in your life. Do the joys seem short? Does the happiness seem like it's constantly ending? Is it constantly this sine wave of joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow? Christmas, not Christmas. (laughs) Back and forth. If that's the nature of your life, if that's the nature of your satisfaction in life, then perhaps you're not touching this infinite well. Perhaps you're touching on the pleasures of the glands and opium and gold. Maybe you're depending on things that are fleeting and unreliable to bring about your happiness. Pay attention, he says. Forgiveness is the treasure you need to craft your falcon wings, to give you those wings that Isaiah said were the eagle's wings, to return to the true realm of divine freedom. Unhook your horse, your wagon from a crazy horse. (laughs) Ramakrishna says, Worldly people wander about to the four quarters of the earth for the sake of happiness. And we do indeed, don't we? I myself went to Prague and to (laughs) Thailand and Rarotonga, you know, before I found my religion, as it were. Searching. We go to the four ends of the earth. What is it that we don't do to try and find our happiness? You know, how much money did we pay to go to school? How much money did we spend for our big house, you know? How many fights have we endured in our relationships, hoping to find that Disney ending to everything? They don't find it anywhere. They only become tired and weary. That's the end result. If you continue a life that's based on these fleeting things, fine. But know in the end, when you're old, there's only weariness and tiredness waiting there. Just a worn-out wondering, really? (laughs) Was that what this was about? A world-weary. And if you're unfortunate, there's that bitterness at not having gotten what you dreamed of when you were young, of not being able to enjoy the money that you accumulated now because you can't walk or you can hardly move (laughs) or you're always in pain. Those things. He said, they don't find it anywhere. They only become tired and weary. When through their attachment to this woman in gold, they only suffer misery, they feel an urge toward dispassion and renunciation. And at last, they build a hut in one place and settle down there. And then, free from worry, free from effort, they meditate on God. 
So there's the happy ending to the story. <laughs> if you hear the bidding of Hafiz and you pay attention, you look at the results of the things that you're hooking your wagon to. You pay attention, then you realize, I don't have to wander to the four quarters of the earth. I don't have to work 14 hours a day. I don't have to buy the best of everything for everyone around me in order to, to, to mine my happiness, to mine their success and their happiness, because you can't give it to them through that. How many rich kids do you have to witness to know <laughs> their happiness is not coming from the money that's giving to them? How close do we have to look? We just have to pay attention. Build that hut in one place. Let go of your worries. Be where you are. Be right here, right now. I'm not talking about a family and a home and a distant place. I'm talking about right now in this chair, in this room. Be here now. Meditate on God. Why? Because by following that echo, you'll find the treasure inside. You'll find that infinite bliss that is within you. That source that's not fleeting, that doesn't go up and down. I heard a wonderful thing this week that uh, was from a, a saint named uh, Simone Weil. She's a French lady. And she said, the separation from God is not one of distance, but one of attention. She says, it, it, the, the, there was an example of if you're standing on the beach and your lover is standing behind you and you're not aware of it, and you're looking out at that vast expanse of ocean, your lover is infinitely far away from you. No matter how far you look, you cannot see him. When in fact, he's standing directly behind you the whole time. And that's our experience. You know, we hear it again and again and again. Every single Vedanta class that I've been to in 18 years, this is not a statement of, of drama, it's true. I will always hear at least once that complaint, oh, it'll have to be my next life, or I'm, I've got so much to do, I'm so far away. You know, I've got so much work to do. We're always talking about that, as if we're standing on the beach, looking out at that vast distance, I've got such an ocean to sail to get there. It's not a matter of distance, but a matter of attention. Turn around, look within, your lover is behind you, has never left you. Touch that infinite grace, that infinite love of the divine that is there. To bring it into the day-to-day, -day, you have to go always, of course, to Vivekananda. In Karma Yoga, he says, later on we shall find that even this idea of duty undergoes change and that the greatest work is done only when there is no selfish motive to prompt it. That's that ideal that for just a moment I saw in that dark church at night. That if you accept that infinite forgiveness, if you accept that assurance from Takur that everybody's coming home, if you accept that there's nothing needed, if you can hear mother's whisper in your ear that it's okay, and believe it all the way down, then everything that you do will be of the greatest work.
He says the greatest work is only done when there is no selfish motive to prompt it, when you realize there's nothing to be done. Your work then can come from a different place. It could come from fun, from inspiration, from love, from service, from worship. You put all of those things in the same basket. Yet it is work through the sense of duty that leads us to work without any idea of duty. When work will become worship, nay, something higher. Then work will be done for its own sake. <laughs> no motive at all. Not, a, not even a sudden, let alone a selfish motive. No, no motive. It's just done for its own sake. Just as the witness, watching the wonder of it. We've talked about that, the depth and beauty of this experience of life. When you stop for a moment, thinking that you've got it figured out. And look at things as they are and realize that your understanding is less than three wise deep. You know? We've talked about that at length. At that point, work is done for its own sake. Beautiful because it's beautiful to operate your hands, to watch them create, to watch them fill out even a mundane form. To think as you write your name, how long did it take you to learn that? You know, we, we never think about that when we sign a thing. <laughs> How long it took, how long it took, how much effort it took for you to train your hand to be that skilled. And the fact that you could, the fact that you did. These little things like that. It's seeing the world freshly and new. That's how God is seen, Sri Nishragadatta says. When you see the world again for the first time, you will see God hidden in everything. Work done for its own sake. We shall find that the philosophy of duty, whether it be in the form of ethics or of love, is the same as in every other yoga, the object being the attenuating of the lower self so that the real higher self can shine forth, the lessening of the frittering away of energies on the lower plane of existence. That's why we're tired. That's why we're tired. Frittering away our energies on the lower plane of existence, not touching the inspiration, not touching the deeper impetus of love, not remembering an identity that covers everything, not remembering experience of life, not paying attention to the results of, of hooking your wagon to temporal things. The distance is not one of, separation is not one of distance, one of attention. You're not learning the lessons. To fritter your energies away on the lower planes of existence so that the soul may manifest itself in higher ones. This is accomplished. Okay, if you're taking notes, here it is. This is accomplished by the continuous denial of low desires, which duty rigorously requires. The whole organization of society has thus been developed, consciously or unconsciously, in the realms of action and experience, whereby limiting selfishness, we open the way to an unlimited expansion of the real nature of man. So that's where the romance ends. <laughs> that's where the romance ends. If the romance kept going, it would just be sentimentality. We just sit here and get drunk on the love of God and still be awful people. <laughs> that is not the way to go. What is the way to go? The continuous denial of lower desires, which duty rigorously requires. That self-discipline, that learning the lessons when you realize, wow, 
I went out and got, you know, hideously drunk last Saturday, and the next Saturday morning, what did I say? I said, oh my God, I'm never going to do that again. Mean it. That's the rigorous denial. It's not giving up something you love. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's understanding that you're not loving the right thing and giving it up. It's the thing that made your Saturday morning miserable. After a while, it might be the thing that lost you your marriage and lost you your job and put you, you know, to go to the extremes, put you on the street. It might be that. You know? It's seeing things correctly. It's not giving up the fun stuff in life. That's another one of the things, oh, I always go back to the same things, but Vivekananda said that, you know. He said, religion is not about not enjoying this life. That's not what it's about. He said, religion is teaching you how to enjoy this life so that you don't get stuck, so that you don't get tripped up to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. To become that person you want to be, <laughs> that person that you set out to be. It made me want to go right to the end of the lecture. I have some great internet wisdom to share. <laughs> We're going to go here to Sri Nishagadatta, sitting there making his cigarettes in Bombay while some of his students are sitting around him on the sidewalk. The questioner says, I am full of desires, and I want them all fulfilled. How do I get what I want? Maharaj, do you deserve what you desire? In some way or other, you have to work for the fulfillment of your desires. Put in the energy and wait for the results. Where am I to get that energy? Maharaj. Now, listen to this all the way to the end. Because <laughs> my, my mind put up red flags on some of this stuff. Where am I to get the energy? Maharaj. Desire itself is the energy. Questioner. Then why does not every desire get fulfilled? Maharaj, maybe it was not strong enough or lasting enough. Questioner, yeah, that is my problem. I want things, but I'm lazy when it comes to action. Maharaj, when your desire is not clear nor strong, it cannot take a shape. Besides, if your desires are personal for your own enjoyment, the energy you give them is necessarily limited. It cannot be more than what you have. Questioner, yet often ordinary persons do attain what they desire. Maharaj, after desiring it very much and for a long time, even then their achievements are limited. Questioner, and what about these unselfish desires? Maharaj, when you desire the common good, the whole world desires with you. Make humanity's desire your own and work for it. There you cannot fail. That's a long way, roundabout way, of saying unselfish work. Increase your ego to include everybody. Increase your desires to be sensitive to everyone. Those things that are benefit to everybody. Those things that are helpful to everybody. Spend your day like that. Color your day like that. Sure, you're doing your work and you're doing it well. Give it the higher reason. Not the paycheck, not to get the finished, not because of the deadline. Do it for its own sake, the best you can, because everything is already finished. The deathbed has already been made. <laughs> Don't work on these things. Know that all the happiness you think you're going to wreak out of that, 
all the pleasure you think you're going to wring out of what you're working for, when you realize, no, because even if you get this deadline finished, there's another one. Even if you master this project, the next one has to begin from zero. It's round and round and round and round. You have to find something deeper and something more meaningful to drive you forward. Don't get frittering, don't, don't fritter away your energies in these lower views of the world. Don't be so distracted. Wake up a little bit. Pay attention a little bit. And realize, yes, I have to go deeper to be satisfied if I pay attention. Yes, I do have to open up to a lot more possibilities if I'm going to pay attention. Don't be a coward. Face that. Live accordingly. Become that shining example of what humanity is, what it's meant to be. Whatever name you give it, will, steady purpose, one-pointedness of the mind, no matter what name, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, and truth. Oof. Where did that come from? <laughs> Whatever name you give your will, your steady purpose, your one-pointedness of mind, it's going to come back to those three things, earnestness, sincerity, truth, or honesty. When you are in dead earnest, you bend every incident, every second of your life to your purpose. You do not waste time and energy on other things. You are totally dedicated. Call it will, call it love, call it plain honesty. We are complex beings at war within and without. We contradict ourselves all the time, undoing today the work of yesterday. No wonder we are stuck. A little of integrity would make a lot of difference. <laughs> a little integrity will make a lot of distance, a, a lot of distance in our lives. You know, to own up to the way it is. You know, I grew up <laughs> a suburban boy, a white suburban boy, very wonderbred, dreaming of my fame and fortune. You know, I used to draw posters of my concerts that were going to happen and put them up in my room, you know, <laughs> at the stadium, at such and such, $50 to get in. These ideas, but what did I do? I watched Scooby-Doo and, you know, the Flintstones, and then the Partridge family was on, and then the Brady Bunch was on, and then mom would call me to dinner, and then after dinner I'd watch the Donnie and Marie show, you know. <laughs> so I would feed all of my desires, but I was lazy. I didn't work for any of that vision, for any of that ideal. I didn't go there to the, to the mountaintop, you know. I didn't go learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> still haven't learned. 53 years I've wanted to learn how to play the guitar and I still don't play it. You see, this is our dilemma, isn't it? Ramakrishna had taught his mind since his childhood. Life is ephemeral. Do quickly what has to be done, and perform every action with intense eagerness. Again, a little thinking brings out the fact that the mind becomes endowed with that disposition as the result of practicing one-pointedness and steadfastness. That's Ramakrishna himself telling us, his attitude that he learned in life. Act quickly. If it's something that has to be done, do it, and do it eagerly. Not like, oh, God, I have to do my laundry. <laughs> oh, God, I've got to do the dishes. 
wrong attitude. He says, develop that one-pointedness. Do it as worship. Splash around in the water if you need to satisfy some lingering desires, you know, to have fun. So have fun, but be eager and be straightforward and be diligent. Get to work on it. You know, that's the thing. With this, with this whole idea of our focus on how far away God is and how much work we have to do. Shut up. <laughs> Who cares? You've missed the point entirely. You missed the point entirely. The point is be present now. God is present everywhere. Be with them now if that's what you want. Stop saying you want it and then paying attention to all the reasons you can't have it. If you want it, have it. It's yours now. The forgiveness of God is universal and free and deep and beloved. Sit and meditate on that right now. Not on what you've got to get done or how evil you are or how good you are. You know, how maybe you think you're so advanced. Wonderful. <laughs> good for you, as Ramakrishna would say. But do the work. This, this saint that I was reading this week, Simone Weil, she had a very interesting book, uh, which you might be interested in, called Waiting on God. She's talking about education, but you can broaden the meaning out to what she's saying here. Most often, attention is confused with a kind of muscular effort. If one says to one's pupils, now you must pay attention, one sees them contracting their brows and holding their breath and stiffening their muscles. If after two minutes they are asked what they have been paying attention to, they can reply nothing, you know. So this, this effort is more of a negative effort. It's an undoing. Paying attention means be very present right now. Open everything up. Stop all of the stuff you are doing. Not do something else. Stop doing everything else in your mind that you're doing. Stop everything else that you're doing with your hands and body. Stop. That's what paying attention is. Open yourself up to the present, to the moment. She says, the joy of learning is, an indispensable, is as indispensable in study as breathing is in running. You know, that is this, she, why just study? That's what she's talking about in the chapter. But think of this in life. The joy of living is as fundamental to living well as breathing is to running. It's fundamental to your success in touching the divine. That seems like a catch-22. It happens at the same time. Stop everything for a moment. Pay attention. You will recognize a bliss that has always been there underneath everything else before it was shut down by the worry of tomorrow or the regret of yesterday. Be quiet. Pay attention. Be earnest. Be honest. In this moment. It is the part played by joy in our studies that make them a preparation for spiritual life. For desire directed toward God is the only power capable of raising the soul. So that desire that, that, uh, that Nishagatata Maharaj was talking about, the desire that is energy for what you want, to take that desire and increase it, keep that focus strong and hold it for a long time. Remember he was saying all of that? That's how you accomplish what you want. And by keeping that desire on God, it's a self-feeding power loop. It is your solar energy, <laughs> as it were.
This desire directed toward God is the only power capable of raising the soul. Or rather, it is God alone who comes down and possesses the soul. But desire alone draws God down. Ah, So we'll go into that story for a moment. How Takwar says, long for God. God cannot resist the love of a devotee. You know, there's that, that story says that God says, I hesitate to give pure love because I am enslaved by it. Have that longing for God. Work on that desire. And how do you do that? Again, you know, most of us, <laughs> if you just do that attention in the moment, just be present for a moment, you'll become hungry for what you have. You'll become hungry for what you have. Now, why do I say it that way? Because that's what's different about the desire for God and the desire for everything else in the world. If you desire the stereo you already have, you have a lot of satisfaction in that. That's a good thing. If you desire the stereo that's in the store window, that's a lot of unhappiness. You know, (laughs) that's a lot of struggle. So desire what you have. You have within you infinite love. It is your nature. You have within you infinite existence. It is your nature. You have within you infinite intelligence. It is your nature. Pay attention to that. Have the faith to accept that. Believe that. And let the moment that it touches you, that it springs up for just a second, Increase your hunger a hundredfold. That's a great Swami, and if I was one, I could remember his name, who said once at the dinner table in, in, uh, he probably was quoting somebody else, who knows, anyway. He said, he said, the only reason that fulfilling a desire is pleasant is because for just a moment after that desire is fulfilled, you're left without desire. And your natural bliss becomes apparent. He said the thing didn't give it to you at all. The thing alleviated your desire for a moment so that you weren't distracted. That separation from God, which was attention, gets alleviated for a moment and God becomes apparent, springs out for just a second until your next desire comes in. Stereo version (laughs) 2.0. You know, so that is where this fulfillment lies. She goes on. I'm going to go back here to the Old Testament. I'm just going to read a few little pieces of wisdom from the old, from the scriptures, from the Christian scriptures, actually. The Book of Proverbs, which is kind of just a collection of wisdom sutras, just one after another. If you ever want to read it, it's a fun one. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. There it is. In Colossians, which is a letter in the New Testament from St. Paul to a church in the city of Colossia, somewhere around Greece, or maybe it was in Greece, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. In Bhakti Yoga, Vivekananda says, pray that that manifestation which is our father, our mother, may cut our bonds 
You know, this is one of the things we don't often, well, what do I know about what we often do? But Thakur says that prayer is in itself a path to God. And, uh, you know, spending, spending two weeks up in that Christian monastery, <laughs> they really pray. I mean, we were praying eight times a day as a group together. And I tell you, whether one wants to believe in prayer or not, it changes your consciousness when eight times a day you're thinking about others and praying for their welfare and about their problems and uh, gives you a certain inner strength to bring your own up constantly before you like that. So there's three things here. that th These come from our own scriptures in Bhakti Yoga. He says, pray that God may cut your bonds. So those things that are grabbing your attention, that are keeping you from seeing that divinity, if you just can't get there, stop trying. Stop the work and say, Tuck, I know you're standing behind me. Please help me turn around. You know, give me a hint. And let go and trust. Because just that trusting undoes a lot of the noise that's keeping you from seeing. He says, pray, take us by the hand as a father takes his sons, and don't leave me. So two things to pray here. God, take away my bonds. Pray, don't leave me. Pray, I do not want wealth or beauty, this world or another, but you, God, you, my Lord. I have become weary. Take me by the hand, Lord. I take shelter with you. Make me your servant, and you be my refuge. Be my refuge. This is how God gives you peace, stillness, so that you can become aware and pay attention by letting go of all the things that have stirred up your mind, that have kept you frittering away your energy on lower planes of thinking. These are the things that will set you free to a life that's built on ideals and built on principles that will give you the strength you need to get up and try again. Even though you look stupid for doing it, how many times have I fallen? You know, I'm on my, I would have to say, probably eighth attempt at learning the guitar. And I didn't even take it with me on my trip. <laughs> so when I look at that guitar in my room, I feel stupid. I'm like, good Lord, 40 years. You <laughs> 40 years. I said 53 earlier because that's how old I am. But 40 years I've been thinking about playing the guitar. It's only the grace of God that can help you in times like that. Where you just don't feel ridiculous in trying again. Try again. Try one more time. A great poem by Hafiz where he says, I saw you dancing and praying on the roof of your house last night, and I went in to dress myself up so that I could come join you. By the time I got myself all ready to come, you had stopped twirling. If you had twirled just one more time, we could have danced together. That's how your practice is. You go to the shrine. Oh, you were distracted. Maybe it was not a very good meditation from your eyes. But mother was gussying herself up, <laughs> getting all ready, and then 
<laughs> he quit. She quit. It is only work that is done of free, as a free will offering to humanity and to nature that does not bring any binding attachment. The summary is this. I'm going to go to two things. The summary, according to a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which is King Solomon, king of the Jews a long time ago, who had, I'll give you a little bit of background. He, when his father died and he was given the kingdom, God came to him and said, okay, you have your choice. I can make you the most powerful king ever, or I can make you the richest king ever, or I can make you the happiest king ever. I think it was something like that. It's irrelevant. And he says to God, you know, I don't want any of those things. What I want is the wisdom to lead your people well. And because of that, God said, wow, <laughs> you hit the jackpot. I'm giving you everything. So Solomon was giving all these things. And the book of Ecclesiastes is his documentation. He decided, since I have infinite wealth, infinite power, all of this prestige, I'm going to go and find out what life is about. And he does one experiment after another through this whole book of Ecclesiastes uh, to figure it out. And he tells you what the fruit of each one of those attempts were. You know, he went and conquered places. He built huge uh, uh, monoliths to himself and to his own glory. You know, I think he had a thousand wives and 800 concubines or something like that. So he didn't hold back. You know, he went for it. This is what his summary is. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Do you see the problem there? He makes everything beautiful for a time, in its time. But in the human heart, he has set eternity. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy, to do good while they live, that each one of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. You see, you sum all of that up. You understand the world is as it is, beautiful in its moment. Be in the moment where everything is beautiful. Enjoy your work by doing it for its own sake as an offering to the beloved. Know that everything is already accomplished by having that deep, long-standing faith that God is love. Forgiveness is complete. Grace is infinite. Believe the goal has already been reached and just spend the rest of the time waiting on the Lord. Living for others. Now in a much less gracious way, but in a way that was very, that spoke to several people because I got this off of a website and somebody said, this changed my life. I cleaned up the language a little. <laughs> I cleaned up the language a lot, actually. Here are 12 principles for getting where we want to go in a very practical way. Number one, do the work. Don't be lazy. So when you get the choice of playing that phone game one more time 
or actually sitting down and writing your essay, write the essay. You know, <laughs> do the work. Don't be lazy. Two, stop waiting. It's time. Stop waiting. It's time. Don't put it off. Whatever it is you've wanted to accomplish, whatever it is you think you needed to do, whatever correction you need in your life, I'm going to meditate a lot tomorrow. <laughs> Stop waiting. It's time. Three. The original one says, rely on yourself. The universe doesn't care. Which, okay, that works too, in a cold way. I changed it a little bit and said, rely on yourself, for you are the universe. There's nothing outside you that's going to give you anything. My, uh, my fame and fortune and uh, being a pop star didn't happen, thank goodness. But <laughs> it didn't happen not because I was, had the wisdom to see through it at the time. It happened because I was watching Scooby-Doo instead of practicing, <laughs> instead of learning my guitar like that. So rely on yourself. The universe is you. Four, be practical. Success is not a theory. Be practical. Look at what's in front of you, work with it, and go forward. I had a wonderful devotee in San Francisco. I won't tell you his name, <laughs> but he had this idea. You know, there was the dot-com boom in San Francisco, and he had this idea. He wanted to start a company. He was, from, he was from Pune or somewhere in India. So he wanted to start a company, and so he went back to India, and he came back. I, I, I wish I was making this up. It's, it was hilarious, but it was insightful, too. He came back and he was like, well, I've got it started. I've got it started. I went and I talked to 30 of my friends in India and they're all going to work for me. We're going to start a new company. I was like, cool. What are you doing? Oh, we haven't decided that yet. <laughs> you want to be a nice guy, you know, but you're like, dude, <laughs> there's carts and there's horses. Be practical. Success is not a theory. Five, be productive early. Don't wait around all day. Stop reading the newspaper. It's 1030 already. You know, no, you don't need another cup of coffee before you go back to the office. Go back. Get busy. Start your day productive. <laughs> oh, Lord. Every one of these I'm so guilty of. Be productive early. Don't wait around all day. Number six, don't be a baby. Life is hard. Get on with it. <laughs> don't be a baby. Don't sit around. I can't do it. It didn't work. Don't be a baby. It's hard. Get on with it. Get up. Get going. Seven, keep the company of the people you want to emulate. You know, if you're hanging around with a bunch of people whose favorite thing is Scooby-Doo, you're not going to learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> Choose to hang out with the people who are going where you want to go when you're given the choice. Enjoy everybody as the Lord, but hang out with those. Choose to hang out with those who are emulating what you want to be to get there. Eight, don't waste your time on things you can't control. That's a great one. Don't waste your time worrying about things you cannot control. That's a big one these days. Because there's so much crazy stuff going out there. And you hear about it everywhere. 
and you want to hear about it because you just can't believe it's happening. You're like, oh, my God. And how much time do you sit there frittering it away? You know, I think about last night. I had so much trouble falling asleep last night, you know, because of politics, of all things. <laughs> really? You know, if it really bothers you, write your letter to your senator and get on with it. You know, don't sit there and mull it over and become angry or angry and more and more distracted so that those moments when you could have been thinking about God or you could have been being in the moment learning about this beautiful life that awaits, that is present, instead you were sitting there thinking about the president and honking your horn at the you know, person who cut you off in traffic. Don't. Don't do it. Number nine, this is a nice one. Stop pretending. It's embarrassing. <laughs> Stop pretending you're getting farther than you are. Stop pretending you're being more productive than you are. You know? <laughs> stop pretending. It's embarrassing. Ten, stop being a people pleaser. It's sad. Don't go around trying to be that perfect person. That's not the important thing. So what if everybody thinks you're super productive and you're getting nothing done? Where did you get... So what, you've convinced everybody in the world that you're a nice person, but inside you know you're an axe murderer. <laughs> so what? You are what you are. You know, Stop trying to please everyone. Please the divine within you. Eleven, stop putting stuff in your body that's bad for you. That's just a side note. But stop putting stuff in your body that you know is bad for you. You know? For me... Probably don't need that 12th candy kiss from the Prasad box today. <laughs> I probably could have done with just one. <laughs> you know, no, nah, I didn't really need that bag of chips before I went to bed last night. You know, stop putting things in your body that are bad for you. And it's not just that. Let's take let's take a you know Vivekananda's idea of being careful of what you put in your body. Because not just your mouth that takes things into your body, it's your ears and your eyes and your nose and everything else. So pay attention to those things that are going into your body. If you've got bad habits on the internet, become conscious of that. Is this really taking me where I want to go? Is this really what I want to be? You know, Is this accomplishing anything? That's the first question. Stop putting things into your body that are bad for you. And 12, this is the best one. 12, stop doing the same things over and over and hoping things will change. If you're doing the same things over and over and over again, your life isn't going to change. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do huge ones. It doesn't mean you have to do huge ones. I learned this lesson in a cool way. I hesitate to say it lest it look like I'm boasting, which I can assure you I'm not. When I started spiritual life, when I started my quest again uh, in 1998, uh, I heard about meditation uh, because I had borrowed a book secretly from uh, my roommate's bookshelf. And uh, I decided I was going to start meditating. I started with two minutes, twice a day. And I did it precisely because I knew I was a type A idiot who would try and do an hour and a half every day and then would end up after three or four days of failure not doing it anymore because I didn't want to fail. So I decided I'll do what I know I can do. I can do two minutes. 
twice a day. So literally, for like the first year, and I kid you not, it was for a whole year, I sat down for two minutes at my shrine. And my shrine at that time, it was a collection. It was like a nice beach stone there. There was a little purple hippo that I found on a, on a walk. You know, there was a, a piece of driftwood on it. You know, there was some runes. It was a crazy little shrine. Still one of my favorites, though. Two minutes a day. Make a small change. You don't have to make a big one, but make a small one. You want your life to change? You want the world to change? It doesn't happen like that. Change one small thing. Make it last for a month, and then it becomes a habit. Vivekananda says your character is the sum total of your habits. So change small ones. You can add to them later, but do what you can manage. Just do it. It doesn't matter how big it is, how small it is, how ridiculous it is, how, how many times you've failed before, right? That, that's my, one of my, this so, probably betrays way too much about me. One of my favorite stories is when M and Vivekananda were talking after Thakur had already passed away. And, M, and uh, Vivekananda was telling M, he says, I want, to, I want to fast until I realize God. And, uh, and so M says, well, do it. He says, well, I'm afraid that I'll fail. I'm afraid I'll get hungry. <laughs> and M said, so eat and start again. <laughs> it's like, wow, no pressure. <laughs> Just get started. That's the important thing. Don't make grandiose, huge statements of austerity that are going to discourage you and frighten you up front. You know, nobody's telling you that. Start simple. And if it really is that bad, yeah, eat, start again. Just keep a little bit of pressure on there. You know, just a little bit of pressure. They're saying, NASA right now is saying like the star, like the, uh, the, <laughs> the engine in the, uh, the USS Enterprise was the size of a walnut. Because to reach light speed, you don't need a big powerful energy. You just need a steady, long, steady push, just a small little amount of energy in space where there's no friction. You get to light speed that way. Spiritual life is that way too. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Just put a little bit of energy out consistently. Be devoted. Keep pushing. Keep trying. Don't worry about how big and grand it is. Just be steady. Be wrapped in love the whole trip. Take your faith in the fact that it's already done. You're already with the beloved. Hold his hand you can't feel it, pray. Remind me. Help me. Go forward. Live your life for others. One small act at a time. One simple commitment to think about someone new every day. Or maybe it's just to utter a prayer for someone every day. Or maybe it's to start praying after you read a disturbing article. Just to give some sense of, I'm going to do this. And be free, because all that you need is with you. All that you are is within you. The highest ideal has already been accomplished by you. And when your beloved looks at you, that's what he sees. That's who he knows. Who is there to forgive? What is there that needs forgiveness? <laughs>